the most disturbing of nightmares uh, that she's gone through at the hands of someone who's completely evil. I just thought it was probably the most surreal experience I'd had as a crime reporter. It was very strange. Karen Chikuti's body gets found nearby and it all goes to another level. This week, Life and Crimes will have a guest host, ace crime writer, Anthony Dowsley. Thanks, Andrew. I'm with crime reporter David Hurley, who, through his reporting, got into the middle of a murder case. It was the disappearance of Karen Chikuti in 2016. Her killer spoke to David before anyone knew that he was the murderer. David, thanks for joining us. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. So, David, you're uh, at your desk and an email comes in from Victoria Police and all of a sudden you find yourself in the middle of a police hunt for a missing woman. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, every day as a crime reporter is, is different. I suppose an average day you might be going along to press conferences at VicPol. Uh, another day you might be going out to a crime scene. Uh, or another day you might be flicking through a report to try and get a nugget of information which will lead to a story. So it was January 15th, 2016, just after 10am, and we got an email through from the Vic Pol Media Unit to say that uh, a missing person squad was joining police to search for a, a missing woman in Myrtleford. Uh, so the presser was called for 2pm. I got in the car pretty quickly and, and made my way up to up to Wangaratta. The press conference was called for outside Wangaratta Police Station, which was about 30 kilometres away from Harauli, which is where the, the missing lady lived, Karen Chikuti. So at that stage, we really didn't know much about what was going on. There were reports that police had found a burnt-out car in the woods near Myrtleford, which, again, is probably about another 20 minutes or so down the road from Harauli. So... We didn't know too much at that stage about what was happening. By its nature, the fact that it was a missing persons case, it gave a certain energy to, to proceedings which uh, is, is absent from an average Vic Pol presser. Um, Sol Solomon, who's a vastly experienced detective, uh, you could tell that he was, uh, he was very eager to get the message from the cops out there as quickly as possible and to as many people as possible in order to assist the investigation and, and to find Karen. So I guess there's many reports of missing people every day. This one stood out because the Homicide Squad was immediately involved. There's got to be something more serious afoot than just someone's gone missing for a matter of hours or days. Yeah, it soon became apparent that police were very concerned about the welfare of Karen. By this point, it was Friday and she hadn't been seen since Tuesday evening. And there were a number of things about her disappearance which led police to fear that her disappearance was suspicious. Uh, she had last been seen at the Harauli Hotel at about 7.20pm on the Tuesday. She had been photographed on CCTV cameras at the local supermarket a couple of hours before. So police were concerned because she hadn't shown up to her day job at Wangaratta Council on the Wednesday morning and yeah by the time the media became aware of the situation police were very very concerned about her safety. So you went into the Harali Hotel and you spoke to the locals there what did they have to say? Well that Karen was a very popular member of the local community up there and she 
had in fact worked part time at the pub herself, so she was very, um, very well known and well liked in the area, and the local residents were very concerned. Her disappearance was extremely out of character, and by that time, you know, a number of days had passed, and people were really starting to fear the worst. Was anyone pointing the finger at anyone at that stage? At that stage, no. I spoke to a few people in the pub, and then I started going around to to neighbours knocking on doors it's very spread out her alley so um it took some time to to start finding people who were who were home and uh to try and find out a little bit more information about karen no one who i spoke to in the first couple of hours started pointing fingers sometimes on stories we'll we'll do a door knock which pretty much what it sounds like you just knock on doors and you're trying to find out as much information as possible about whatever the story you're covering that might entail knocking on every door in the street and you get told to go away nine times out of ten but on that tenth one you you might get lucky and you get a bit of information which uh, is what you need for your story and um yeah this door knock was quite different because it was in such a rural country setting um, so logistically, it was just sort of quite tricky sometimes because all of these properties were on big, big blocks of land. So it was quite time consuming. Um, I spoke to a couple of neighbours before myself and Simon Dallinger, the photographer who was working with me at the time, walked down the driveway to her next door neighbour. So that's when it becomes really interesting for a reporter walking into a, a, a town and you're about to bump into someone who says some really surprising things about Karen Chikuti. So we walked down the driveway um, and we were about to knock on the door, but I noticed a man who was sat behind the wheel of a ute sort of further along the driveway. It was, a, it was a farm property, so quite spread out. So the man saw us, waited in his ute for about 60 seconds or so, which struck me as fairly odd. He then got out slowly and, and walked towards us and I identified myself as a reporter from a Herald Sun and we started to have a conversation. Really before the conversation could get going he immediately launched into a speech almost about how the police thought that he had something to do with disappearance which struck me as very strange. Well, what did he say? He said just before we get started you should know that the police are looking at me for this to which I responded something along the lines of oh okay why is that then? And he um he went on to say that he had recently been released from prison and that he was on, I think he did tell me that he was on parole. By this point, I'm thinking this is the most unusual interview. Did he mention that he had been in prison for the rape of a 15-year-old girl? Well, at that point in the conversation, I, I asked him what he had been in prison for and he simply replied rape. He didn't describe anything about the victim. What goes through your mind at that point? I just thought it was probably the most surreal experience I'd had as a crime reporter, it was very strange. Mostly people who you deal with when you're asking questions for these types of stories are very guarded about the information they're willing to share with journalists. So to just have somebody blurt out in a matter of seconds all of its detail about themselves and essentially identifying himself as a suspect in a missing persons investigation, yeah, I was quite surprised. So did that degree of honesty, matter-of-factness, make you suspicious that he was the person responsible for Karen going missing and, and that's what she was at that point she was a missing person or did that make you think well he's been so upfront about this I'm tending to believe him yeah so you have to remember at this point this was a Friday Karen's body wasn't found for another three days I think on following Monday 
I immediately thought it was very strange and I strongly suspected he had something to do with her disappearance just because it just seemed such a strange thing to say to a journalist. So what did you do then? You called the newsroom or did you call the police about it? It was getting pretty late in the afternoon by this stage and I was thinking about having to file the story for the, the paper the following day. The man hadn't given me his name, he'd just identified himself as Michael. So my first instinct was just to try and find out his surname, which um, I believe there was a sign for Cardamone Catering on the other side of the property. So with that name, Michael Cardamone, I contacted my colleague Mark Butler, who was back at the office, and we were able to get some details from legal records about Cardamone's previous offending, which he'd alluded to when, when I spoke to him. I didn't speak to the police that night, simply because he had already told me that the police had spoken to him. So I believe I filed a story while our photographer waited patiently outside to, to try and get a photograph of a man. Did you get a photo of him? Yeah, we, we, we did ask him if he wanted to be in a photo and he said no. But given what he'd said, my instinct told me that we were going to need to get a photo of this guy. So Simon, the photographer, set himself up a couple hundred metres down from his driveway. And I think about half an hour later, Cardamolo left his, his farm in, in his ute and we were able to get a picture of him through the, the driver's window. So with all this information that you've got within an hour or so of arriving in the town, maybe even less, you're not only onto a missing person, but you're most likely onto a big murder case. You become even more involved in many ways, and we find out that Karen Chikuti's body gets found nearby, and it all goes to another level. The first clue police had was Karen's car, which was found in Myrtleford. That was found the day before the press conference was called. Karen's body was found on the Monday, but the weekend was a very interesting time because following the publication of the story in the paper on Saturday morning, a lot of media turned up at the Cardamone house and Cardamone had vanished. The police didn't know where he was. He had disappeared at some time during the night and the story took quite another twist then because police didn't know where he was. Did you think that was the act of a man with a guilty conscience? Yes, it seems strange. A guy's told you that he's a suspect in a missing persons case. One day, the next day, he's vanished. It just sets alarm bells ringing. So you're in this rural town. Karen Chikuti's body is found. And it's one of the most disturbing scenes that is imaginable. Can you take us through a little bit about, first of all, what Karen was like and what you found out about her in the days that you were there? And then the unbelievable circumstances of what had happened to her. So, like I said earlier, it quickly became apparent that Karen was a much-loved figure in the local community. It's, it's not a big town, it's very small. People might be familiar with it if they're driving up to the ski fields. It's, it's on that route between Wangaratta and Falls Creek. Yeah. So she'd been there for some time. She was uh, separated from her husband. She had two teenage children. Um, so she had lived in the eastern suburbs in Melbourne but had moved up to that area for a different way of life and by all accounts she had found that she had a good job at Wangaratta Council as a manager and she also was uh, heavily involved in a local community uh, which uh, was centred around around the local pub. All of her friends and family who spoke about her after the discovery of her body spoke of a woman who uh, would do anything for anybody else and uh, her death had a massive impact on on her many friends and family. So at this point of time, Michael Cardamone is missing and we have a Karen Chikuti's body is found. How did they find 
Cardamone. Where was he and, and how did they detect him? In the early hours of Sunday morning, police in St Kilda spotted a car being driven suspiciously and this car was monitored and followed across Melbourne and Cardamone was eventually arrested in the Ringwood area and following his arrest down there he was driven back up to, to Wangaratta to face questioning by the detectives in the missing person squad. And uh, he denies any knowledge of what's happened to Karen? Yeah, I think he stuck to his story, um, which he told me on that Friday night. He said he'd seen Karen roughly about 9pm on the Tuesday night, and the last confirmed sighting of her had been about 7.20pm on the Tuesday by locals at the pub. So Cardamone basically said that he was the last person to see Karen, which of course he was. She'd been at his house, he said. Yes, and that story changed over time because initially he said they'd just spoken at the boundary to the properties there. Their two properties were separated by a small fence. So Cardamone initially said that they'd spoken over the fence and he had offered her some tomatoes. Over the next few days, I think he eventually said that actually Karen had for some reason come into his property before leaving. So he's been interviewed by police. He's denied having anything to do with her murder and he sticks to that for quite some time. Now, he pleads not guilty and this gets all the way towards a trial, takes through that period of time. So Karen's body was found by Lake Buffalo on the Monday. Cardamone was charged with her murder and at a very early stage he indicated he'd be pleading not guilty and that's the position that he took up until I think it was July 2017, so almost 18 months after. And in that period of time there was an undercover operation that went on into Cardamone's actions within the prison. Yeah, that was it was absolutely amazing, really. He had come up with its plot, allegedly involving his mother, to get rid of a witness. Um, and just when you thought the case couldn't get any more strange, it, it did. Unusually in this case, journalists were involved in giving statements to police about what Cardamone had said, and you were the first person to speak to him. So you actually had to make a statement to police. It's quite unusual for journalists to have to give police statements, but not extremely rare. I've been doing crime reporting at Herald Sun for the last five years or so, and in that time, this is the only police statement I've had to give. I had to describe in, in minute detail the, the circumstances surrounding my conversation on that day with Cardamone. I drew them a diagram of where the conversation took place and where that conversation was in relation to where the house was. And the police were just very interested in what exactly Cardamone had said to me. It would later become apparent they were interested because he had told a number of different people slightly different accounts of his meeting with Karen on the night she vanished. And um, I think they believed that the, the differences in Cardamone's story to different people was highly suspicious and had the case gone to trial, had Cardamone persisted with his plea of not guilty, then the investigators hoped that by highlighting the inconsistencies in Cardamone's evidence would essentially point to his guilt. So we get towards the trial and suddenly his story starts to change. He comes into court and pleads guilty. Cardamone maintained he was not guilty for, for quite some time, well over a year. Police had compiled a massive brief of evidence against him. Then it became apparent that he'd been telling people inside prison that he indeed had killed Karen in the most horrific circumstances. And that eventually led to an appearance in court around the middle of 2017. And he 
changed his plea from not guilty to guilty. It was somewhat of a relief to Karen's friends and family, but he has never shown any remorse. And this is where some of the circumstances of Karen's death are revealed, and it is the most disturbing of nightmares uh, that she's gone through at the hands of someone who's completely evil. Cardamone was described as a monster in court, and, and that description's entirely accurate. When police discovered Karen's body, they carried out their tests on the body afterwards, and um, they found horrific injuries. Um, some of what she went through is too graphic to to describe here, but she was injected with some battery acid and ice and animal tranquilizer, and Cardamone used a vehicle to, to run over her, her body after she died. It's just the most horrendous injuries imaginable. It was so horrific that Judge Lex Lazary, a very experienced Supreme Court justice, said that it shocked him and said so in his judgment. He, he sentenced Cardamone to life without parole, which is a very big deal in, in the state of Victoria. Justice Lazary called Cardamone vicious, callous. He said it was unprovoked and it was disgusting. And uh, I think uh, Justice Lazary sums it up very well there. As a journalist, you, you never really know what you're going to find when you go out on the road. And when I walked into that situation, I stumbled upon upon Cardamone, really. I was just doing what any other journalist does in a situation like this. You're knocking on doors, just looking for little bits of information which which will help inform your story. And uh, it just took a turn for the surreal when Cardamone started blurting out all of these details about about his past and, and about the fact that police suspected him of involvement in what would turn out to be one of the most horrendous crimes the state has ever seen. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty strange being in that position where, looking back on it now, you're standing face-to-face with a killer, uh, looking into his eyes, and he's telling you all of this stuff, and then you hear about all this other stuff which comes out later, and... Uh, it's um, yeah, it's quite strange to think that you could be standing so close to someone so evil. A troubled young woman, her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? Uh, I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>